I'm just going to read it. I'm going to give you a fair warning. I'm just going to read it, chapter 9, front to back, and then we're going to unpack. So if you've got your Bible or your PDA, your smartphone, stop texting just a second, or finish your tweet, and then, then get over to Romans 9 with me. And I'm going to be in the NIV. Verse 1, this is Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ, that I, uh, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and for them, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. In verse 6, he says, It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. In verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one in the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, and he's going to quote Malachi 1.3, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God, you know, he's asking the question I'm already asking in my head. Is that fair? Is God unjust? Not at all. He says, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? And what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called? not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as it says in Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you were not my people, they will be called my sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number 
of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah. Nothing to see here, everyone. Step away. <laughs> Unless there's somebody hurt. We good? <laughs> Verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Lord, would you give us some guidance this morning? This is uh, some uh, meaty word, Lord, and we would ask that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that as we wrestle with what your words and your promises are that we would see clearly the clarity that the Holy Spirit can bring us to a passage like this it's in your name that we pray amen if you've been following along with us in Romans or if you followed along with other uh, Bible teachers in the past you might know that Romans 1 through 8 is really the practical side of salvation. It sort of tells the story of this is salvation, the practical side of it, the principles of it, sorry. 1 through 8, the principles. I'm going off notes this morning in case you're wondering. The principles of salvation. He basically takes eight chapters to tell us what salvation is. In Romans 13 through 16, it's the practical side. And we're going to get there. But tucked in the middle of this book is 9 through 11. And if you read around commentators, there are those that say, well, it's just a little sidebar. It's one of those like bunny trails that pastors are inclined to take. But I don't see that at all in this. It flows perfectly. Because if Romans 1 through 8 is the principles of salvation, if 12 through 16 is the practical side of it. What he does in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is identify a problem with salvation. And that problem is if you are Jewish or if you're Israeli or if you're an astute thinker, you might think he just said in Romans 8 that nothing is going to separate us from the word or from the love of Christ. Nothing. But what if you're from Israel? What if you're a Jewish person whose promise was made to Abraham unconditionally? Seems like to me that that would be a huge problem because now what do I do? Because Paul, if I'm reading you right, we're kind of cosmically hosed here. How is it possible that these guys that should have seen it didn't see it? The very ones that Jesus came to tell the story to save, how is it possible that they didn't get it than that they kill them for it. That's what he's unpacking here. And he does it in Romans 9, when he talks about the past of, his, of Israel. He does it in Romans 10, when he talks about the present. And in Romans 11, when he talks about the future. 
of Israel. And it's as simple as this, that if God made a promise to a guy named Abraham and he broke that promise, how on earth could I trust that he'd keep his word to me? That's what he sets out to prove. And interestingly enough, he opens up with this statement of, he says he's in anguish, he's super freaked out. Like, I would be cursed if it meant that my brothers and sisters in Israel, his own people, Paul himself was a Jew, if they would come to Christ, I would be cursed. I would literally go to hell, is what he's saying. Now think about that for a minute, because what is he saying it to? Who is he saying it to? The people who beat him, the people who stoned him, lied about him, heaped shame on him, imprisoned him, said, I would be cursed if it meant that they could get it. And I'm fascinated by that because that's not my uh, go-to response when someone is uh, doing anything to me that involves anything that is lying or cheating. And I'm like, how is it possible that he gets there with it? His emotions, my emotions can get the best of me. And my emotions, whether it's someone doing something to me, saying about me, and sometimes it's just the emotions of what I'm seeing in the scripture can get me. But what Paul did is he didn't let his emotions get him. He let the gospel guide his emotions. That's an important thought because we're going to encounter stuff in our lives on a regular basis that seem gray, that are emotional. And I, I got to tell you, and my wife can probably attest to this, so if she stands up and shouts a little and does a, a lap, sometimes my emotions get the best of me. And when I'm in that moment, I make terrible decisions. My, I'm not cognizant of things. And so in an emotional state, when I'm letting emotions guide who I am, it's not a good time and a good way and in a good headspace to make decisions. It's why, uh, honest to goodness, that sometimes Twitter and texting and, are just a terrible form of communication because you have the ability to respond, boom, right there, uh, and then it's out there. And sometimes you just got to, I need to just sleep on that one. Some of the best advice you could ever take for yourself. If you're mad at something you've seen somewhere posted in public, just give it a night. Sleep on it. The world don't come to an end. You know, you're not going to lose. Into some, you know, but when you let your emotions go there, you, you say and you do dumb things. Paul was emotional about it, but he didn't do something dumb because he didn't let his emotions guide him or get him. He let the gospel guide his emotions. This is important because there are things happening in our society right now that our emotions are getting, mine get a little flared up over it. And we have to make some decisions and take some positions and your parent, how do I teach my child? And because sometimes when you get emotional about something, it doesn't seem right. You can look to the scripture, which I totally believe if you don't, you know, we can agree to disagree, but I believe that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is our plumb line. I was talking to Russ this morning about this. And on the 50, you know, there are lines that are on uh, ESPN that are the lines that are the permanent line, the end zone line. And, but then they go back and they make those little edited lines on the top of it. Here's where the ball is. And those are constantly moving. Our line is the end zone. All the other lines, 
we can make a big, huge fight over the 20-yard line, but the end zone is right there, and we completely get distracted from it. There are things in the Word that really make me uncomfortable. And I could see that's the end zone and that's the line, but I could be over here, yeah, I don't know, I'm going I'm to readjust and rewrite this thing. And what's happened in our society is there are things that are being rewritten right now as it revolves around, as it uh, has to do with people and their sexual preference. And what has happened was, if you are uncomfortable with that, I'm emotional about it, well, I can rewrite the word around it and say, well, it doesn't really say that. And here's the thing, you can, the, the Bible's a lot like a man, I can torture it long enough to make it say whatever I want to. But it says that in the word, and so emotionally, like, well, man, but I've got friends, and what do I do, and how do I, but I can look to that plumb line and then let my emotions be guided by the gospel, not my, my emotions get the best of me. And so when I see that, I say, oh, I'm not angry at that person because of that. Man, I'm brokenhearted for them, and I'm in anguish because I want them so badly to see the light. It gets tricky because when I start to draw a line like that on the other side of the coin, instead of rewriting the scripture, I just go ahead and camp on that one. Then I get distracted because it's so much more fun to judge somebody for their sin uh, because it distracts away from mine. And as it relates to that, I have to go back to the scripture. What does it say and why does it say that if I'm a, a single person that I should not uh, have sex before marriage, that I should save that for that time in my life? Why is it that I should do that? And it says in the word that the, the, the consequences of it. And so instead of emotionally saying, oh, you know, kids are going to be kids. They're just going to do it. There's no hope. That's an emotional response. The word says to flee fornication. So we must flee it. But then when I think about others, instead of judging them or excusing myself, I can say uh, in my own anguish, in my own heart to pray for them and to pray for me. I'm letting my emotions be driven by the gospel. We had an opportunity for that this week at Conduit. Because we threw a party Friday night. And I got some emails. Why would your church sponsor an event where there was alcohol served? And it was an emotional subject. And I want you to know that you could disagree with me, and I won't not like you at all. All I would ask of any of us is that we would be like the Bereans. In Acts 17... In Acts 17, Paul and Silas went to a city called Thessalonica. And it says that they, uh, were, they encountered the, uh, this Jewish people. They told them the truth. They gave the sermon. And then they got the crap beat out of them. But it says that it happened in 17.5 because of their envy and their anger, the Jewish people beat them. They were angry. And it came from whether it was a hurt or a fear or a loss of control. And because of that, that was how they responded. The Bereans, on the other hand, it says that they reacted out of readiness of mind. And because they were ready in mind, they explored what Paul said and went to the scriptures and then, in that case, agreed that, hey, that, that is what the word says. And if I ask anything of any of you here is, don't ever believe anything that I say because I said it. Please don't do that. Go to the word yourself. Be like the Bereans. Be ready with your mind, not your emotions. Because I say crazy things, no question. Go to the Word. <laughs> and is it there or is it not with a readiness of mind? Paul would then say in Timothy to, we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have power and love and of a 
sound mind. God gave you your emotions and he gave you your mind. He made you in his image. God feels anger and sorrow. Those are God-given emotions. Your brain is a God-given thing. It allows you to create and to think. You're not supposed to check it out at the door. Go to the word and is that what it says? Because when I looked in the word, we talked about, should we do this event? Is it okay to do this? And we prayed about it. And I looked into the scriptures, and in John 2, there's two tables, incidentally, in John 2. One is a table at the back of the church where they were selling things that were very helpful for their worship. If you didn't bring a dove with you, that's fine. We got one right here for $9.99. You had to give in the, uh, the, uh, you had to give in the currency of, uh, of Jerusalem, and if you didn't bring that, that's fine. We'll exchange it for you for a slight fee. All these things that were there to help them with their worship. There was another table this table was at a party, it had wine on it, and Jesus turned one of those tables over. And I just thought, if I've got a different position than Jesus on something, it's time for to go see Dr. Jana to get an adjustment. You know, a truthopactic adjustment with my theology. When, when they had the Lord's Supper, that wasn't grape juice. When Paul said, have a little bit of wine, it's good for your stomach, that wasn't grape juice. And so now what do we do? Our society says something different. Because one of the conversations, well, it's kind of a gray area, isn't it? And the truth is, is in the word, it's not a gray area. It's in our society where it becomes gray. And now what do we do? And our struggle was, what about, have we made someone to stumble? Because some of you might say, well, Darren, what if you cause someone to stumble? That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about eating meat that was offered unto idols. Interestingly enough, he didn't actually set a policy in place. He just said, hey, in this city at this time, if it's going to make somebody stumble, in, by the way, offend, being offended and stumbling, those are not the same concept. The gospel is offensive, period. So our goal is not to offend anybody. The goal is not to make anybody stumble. But here in that area, that's a gray area, wasn't covered by scripture. So Paul said, you know what, in that situation, just abstain. Which would be a bummer because those are probably steaks, like good, you know, the best cows and offered idols. And you, you can't go to Ruth's Chris, you know, Jerusalem uh, version. You got to, go, you know. But he said, don't do it there. And I know that he didn't set a policy in place. He let the spirit lead him because it happened again in Acts 17. When Paul and Timothy were headed into a, another area. Now, keeping in mind in Acts 15, they just had this council. Is circumcision required to get into heaven? It was a big enough controversy. They had to get all the dudes together and have a big meeting about this. And they made the decision that it's actually not required to get into heaven. You have to be circumcised. And you know, the little spat between Paul and Peter. and All that happened right there. I bring that up because just two chapters later, Paul, Timothy joined Paul and Silas, and it says, and I quote, and then Paul circumcised Timothy. Like it said that out loud. Like it's one of those things you could just read right over and go, whoa, back up. What? Why would he let him do that? And they just said it wasn't even required. I mean, how much do you love the Lord for that? I love you guys. No. 
He let the Spirit lead him in that moment to say, hey, in this case, we're going to do this because that's what the Spirit is leading us to do here. He never did it again. He didn't set a policy in place. This, this, for this moment, the, uh, he said, I'll be all things to all people that some might be uh, saved. In this case, he was a moil uh, that some might be saved. No policy. And I bring all of this up, and again, you can absolutely disagree with me. It's fine. I just bring it up because I, I want you to know that I love you guys, and I think that critical thinking, that thinking with the spirit, thinking with love, thinking with the scriptures, there's a lot of freedom in that. And the fact of the matter is that in that situation, what we did on Friday night, we felt the spirit was leading us down that road. Now, there are those that have struggled with addiction to that. There was an irony in the fact that we had guys from Place of Hope helping us set up for an event. But it only, again, is a gray area when I don't go to the Word. Because in that case, then at the buffet, when we have food on a church Sunday, we should only have tofu, which I'm sure uh, some of you guys would be thrilled with. But I mean, think about it. Gluttony is, in the Scriptures is listed, one of the seven deadly sins. My mother died at 61 years old because of her lack of care in her. And she'd tell you if she were sitting here today, the way that she ate her entire life. That is just as big of a sin. So that doesn't mean I don't stop eating forever. It means that in what is the spirit leading me to do in that situation? Because here's the thing. When you think about stumbling, and I'm going to get off of this soapbox. If I'm concerned, and I am absolutely concerned, I do not want to make somebody stumble. But if I'm concerned about that, when I set up rules, regulations, and policies that are not commanded of us in the scriptures, we, you've been around, you've heard me say this a half a dozen times, but legalism is when I'm adding something to the scriptures that is not there already. When I do that, as our young men and women are growing up in school and they begin to look in the Bible and they begin to, what we want them to do, make their faith their own, and they begin to see, wait a minute, it doesn't say that in there. You know, for me, that journey was, you had to have hair above your collar, you know, wear the suit. I had to wear a tie every Sunday just to play in the church band. Can you believe that? And I'm 18 going, but I don't see that anywhere in there. What else are they holding out on? What else can I not believe? And legalism made me stumble. And I think that legalism is every bit as dangerous as that. And so my admonition to you as parents and as grandparents and just brothers and sisters in Christ is don't let our emotions drive our decisions. Let the word, guided by the spirit, bathed in love. I bring all of that up. You're thinking, that has nothing to do with this at all. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Because Romans 9 introduces and defends a doctrine known as predestination, and man, that'll make people's blood boil. It's the kind of thing that'd be fun to skip over. But it's there. Now what do we do? Now my emotions would say things like, Oh, I know that's in the Bible, but, oh, I know this, uh, but look, this is what, the way I believe it. By the way, that's a huge red flag. If, if you're beginning to make God in your image instead of letting him create you in his image, anytime you use the sentence, oh, I know that's in the Bible, but, 
that's you redrawing the map of what the scriptures have laid out for us. And I, I might add, every time we do that, we miss out on amazing freedoms that he has promised us. Because he unpacks this story for us, and we're not going to get through all of it, clearly, today, by setting up the story of Israel themselves, by telling a story of Pharaoh, of it says there that he says that God chose Pharaoh for this very purpose. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? If you go to Exodus and read the story, 20 times it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 20. 10 times it says God hardened it. 10 times it says Pharaoh hardened it. Who hardened his heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes. He unpacks it with a story of Jacob. And I love this story because it beautifully illustrates God's plan for our lives. Jacob was a, uh, you know what, he was a scumbag. He was a jerk. I tweeted it this morning, but I don't have a problem with the Jacob uh, I loved and Esau I hated because of the Esau I hated part. The problem I have is that he actually loved Jacob. Because Jacob was a thief. He was a heel snatcher. That's what his name meant. He was a liar. He was me. And so I don't have a problem with Esau. It's with Jacob. And with Jacob, it gives me hope. Because Jacob, after stealing the birthright and the birth thing from, uh, from Esau, and he runs off to Pandanaram, he comes to a place, he's on the run because his brother is going to open up a big old can on him. And he gets there and he sees, he's at the, uh, where the water is. It's, you know, that it's a, after you've been on a journey, you go where there's water in the well and, and there's, there's a stone over the water so it's protected. And, and here comes this totally rocking uh, hot chick named Rachel. And he absolutely is smitten with her. And what is hysterical to me is that this, and guys, young men especially, take a lesson from this. It wasn't because he then went over by himself and lifted up this stone and moved it away that I think won her heart. It's because I think it's uh, verse 5-ish in uh, Genesis 40-something, 6-ish. It says that he wept. He kissed her and wept. It's the emotional thing, guys. You get that? When we cry, it totally turns them on. It's this weird thing that... Uh, so, so Rachel's like, dude, I'll take that. And we were trying to be strong. And I just did a little tear thing. That's what you, so he, it says he kissed her and he wept. And she hugs him and she wants him. I'm like, are you kidding me? He just lifted a rock. He goes back, and you know the story. And if not, we'll break out the flannel grass. But he goes back. He makes a deal with dad. And he's going to work for seven years for her. And he does. And he wakes up, and we don't have time to get into the details of a Jewish wedding, but believe me, it's possible that he woke up, like in the middle of a Seinfeld movie. Uh, that's not her. <laughs> Imagine Leah, how humiliated she was. Because it's pretty much like the whole, ah! <laughs> jump out of bed, what are you, you know. Imagine how embarrassing and how humiliated she must have felt that day. And for the rest of her life, while well, Jacob put in another seven years for her sister. And Leah is, what, does she chop liver? And the answer was yes. She was a problem for him. 
Finally, he marries, gets Rachel, and interestingly enough, she begins to make his life miserable. She can't have kids, and so she's jealous, and so she starts, hey, take this one and have a baby with this one. Next thing you know, Jacob has just got more women and babies. He's, he knows what to do with. And she is looking at him saying, give me children or I'll die. Just that, I mean, imagine that kind of pressure on you as a man. It's like it's his fault. And eventually, she does have children. And interestingly enough, she dies. Makes his life miserable. The thing that he wanted, the thing that he thought he needed so bad that he worked so hard that he thought he got completely hosed out of, made his life miserable. Fast forward a few decades, the end of Genesis in 49. And if you've been around, you've heard me say this, but it's worth repeating in this context because some of you this morning might be thinking, did God, is it, is it fair this situation that I'm in? What about my actions in this deal? Are they fair? What, you know, what do I, am I just a puppet? Is there, but listen to this. Listen to what happened and then you just ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and what that means in your life as far as what God has predestined you to do or to be. And at the end of his life, he's praying for his boys and he's putting, praying blessings over them and, and he gets to the last of them and he says, and now bury me with, listen to this, bury me with Leah. Not Rachel, Leah. Leah would give birth to a boy named Judah. And Jesus was a lion of the tribe of Judah. I've made some really dumb decisions, and I know that you have too because you're a human. And I take a lot of rest and peace knowing that I can't be dumb enough to mess myself up out of God's will, and I can't be smart enough to do the same either, to get myself into it, that I am not a puppet. I'm making decisions. He made those decisions, but God is big enough to move this piece, to put that one here to there, because what about Rachel? What does that mean for her? doesn't seem very fair either, does it? Unless you forget that from her would be born a son named Joseph. And it was Joseph who would actually save Israel. Joseph who would be a picture of Jesus perfectly in the scriptures. There are a lot of paths that we can take in life and we absolutely get to make decisions. How is it possible that God can give me my ability to decide and to choose and that he would predestine before time and both of those can coexist? There's a quote from a guy that I wish I could remember his name and I'd give him credit, but a God who is big enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. I don't know. I know that when we get caught up in a debate of this versus that and it turns into the, well, what about this scripture? Well, what about that scripture? What about this? What about, well, they're both in the word. Now what do we do? It's almost like if I deflect it, then mine, his doesn't count anymore, but they're both in there. So now what do we do? And we look to the context and the whole of scripture and saying that both are true. And in the paradox, God grows. He doesn't shrink. Someday I'll understand it. It's, I don't know. I have no idea. But my peace is that I have a loving Savior. I see in the story of Jacob that this actually will work out to, for my good. I can't screw it up bad enough. 
that God can't eventually, not that there won't be consequences, not that there won't be pain and sorrow and on this side of heaven, but God is big enough to figure that out for me. Jeremiah, it says, was told to go to the potter's house. Paul would actually kind of reference that and say, who are you to say to the potter what you want and don't want? And I love that picture because of a potter who would have his hands on the clay, his feet on the wheel, spinning it. And the moment that I feel like this is not working out very well for me, and most of us have been there, maybe are there, or if you're not, you'll be there soon. You can always look over and see that the hands of that potter have holes in them. That right below there is feet that are pumping the wheel that have holes in them. And there's a head looking over with eyes of love that are scarred with thorns that hung there. You have a potter that loves you. And so while this might not feel this good or that might not feel that, just look to the hands. Look to the gospel. Let the gospel guide your emotions. Don't let your emotions get you. And we don't have to get involved in the debates. When you've got a theology named after a person and you're willing to fight for that, I think you've already moved the line a little bit. I don't care what Calvin or Arminian, what does Jesus say? And I can't, it's hard to get over a fight because if you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist, well, you're both Christians. It's not a with us or against us, it's a with us and a with us thing. I was, uh, I was called a complimentarian once by one of these guys that's a little more, you know, the serious ones that are like the dark rim glasses and the designer jeans, those kind of guys that, and they, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, it was in a theology context that was just very serious, you know what I mean? Uh, that you, you called me a complimentarian, and it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a compliment, by the way. <laughs> um, but I would say to you this morning that I don't want to be an, a Calvinist or an Arminian or a complimentarian. I just want to be a Christ follower. I want to follow Jesus. And what is he saying? He said that he chose you. He said, I've chosen you to go and to bear much fruit. The word tells to choose you this day. So it says both. I can embrace both. And I don't have to get in a fight with anybody over it. Because we're all on the same team. It's the Jesus team. That's on the macro level. On the micro level. For those of you that are like most of us that don't care about that stuff. You're on the potter's wheel. It is going to be okay. Jacob, if you need any proof of that, look to Jacob. Look to a guy who didn't deserve it. Look to Israel, a nation who actually says in Deuteronomy was a nation of hard-hearted, stubborn. It wasn't because they were so nice that he chose them. And I take so much peace in that because it's not because I'm a good guy that he chose me or you. It's because he loves you, that he has chosen you. And in that context, wherever you find yourself today, and if it's your set of decisions that have gotten you here, I assure you they weren't as bad as Jacob's, and I assure you that God is bigger than that, and he will just climb back up on the potter's wheel, look to those hands, let the gospel guide your emotions, don't let your emotions get you. We're going to worship. And my hope for you is that you will we covered a lot of ground this morning that you will let the spirit speak to you this morning for those of you you know that 
might not agree with a couple of the things I've said, man, that is fine. I love you, and hopefully you love me, and we can, you know, be not a with us or against us, but a with us and a with us conversation. I'm more concerned, I'm more aware of, maybe I should say, of those that are not in a heady theological place, but in a real-life messed-up, screwed-up place. Because if I let Romans 9 just become an academic exercise, I have completely missed the wagon. This wasn't an exercise in academics. This is the Spirit guiding us, saying, it is going to be okay. That person that is messing up your life, look to them with the gospel and anguish in your heart, and God, please, anything to get them back. But it's up to him, keeping in mind, Paul didn't go do that. He said, it's... it's, Father, pray for them. Whether it's your spouse or your brother, your sister, your co-worker, throw, throw it into the context of the gospel today and with anguish in your heart, pray for them that God might reveal himself to them. And for your own self, there's this peace that passes understanding that he promised us that in the middle of hurt, I mean, Paul says he was emotional, he was hurt, he was sad, he was sorrowful, that there's a peace that passes understanding that can be in that moment for you. As the potter spins the wheel with his feet with the scars in it and guides it with his hands with the holes in them, know this, that someday, it says, we will gather around his throne and sing righteous and true were your judgments, O God. Not because we have to, but because we will be genuinely blown away. That's what you were doing. That's amazing. That was awesome. There won't be anybody going, oh, that was kind of dumb. Won't be any bloggers out there throwing rocks. Because we'll all be, that was awesome. That was awesome. Lord, we worship you today with the gospel in mind, the good news that you have come and set us free, the good news that you love us, that you're guiding us, the good news that your hands are guiding that wheel for us. And for those that are feeling especially hurt this morning and not understanding, Lord, sometimes it's all we have to hold on to is the promise. And I pray that your spirit would just download the promise from our heads to our hearts that you've chosen us, that you love us, and just like Jacob, you've, you're going to work it out. In Jesus' name, amen.